Stone's Throw, and Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. I hope you were listening to that program just before me. Yes, the guy from, the dude from the Smithsonian Mars Mars, you know. These guys, they drive me nuts. They're always, always trying to get up off the earth, you know, shoot out into space. I call them the space cases. Escape from the bosom of Mother Earth. Very Freudian, if you study it. I always ask, why not go the other way, boys? Go into the deep, into the depths of the sea. Study Earth, our home. Uh, Cousteau, um, the guy, he's on the television, you know, descendant of Jacques Cousteau. He tells us that only 5% of the oceans have been explored. So why not go where we can? You know, deep inside ourselves, into the dark, down, 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 into the, the womb of life itself. I'll go, just get me a capsule. Uh, I... I have never understood that space stuff, so I'll just keep my mouth shut about it. Obviously, somebody's getting off on it. Somebody somewhere's having fun. This is moi, Jennifer Stone, with Stone's Throw once a week, every Tuesday at 3 today. It's Tuesday, April 21. 21st April 2009. And here at KPFA, we are still celebrating our 60th anniversary. Uh, our late middle age, 60 years of progressive thinking. <laughs> Some people would say progressive propaganda. I always say I'm a publicist for the revolution. These days we say evolution, you know, try to be uh, less than than fierce. Uh, anyway, where else can you hear yourself think but on KPFA radio? Jeez. Uh, <laughs> Did you hear? I hope you heard CS Song this noon on KPFA. He has this terrific show called Against the Grain. I try never to miss it. Uh, anyway, today it was all about moral relativity and moral absolutism. Makes me long to be back in the classroom, you know, in that sophomore class where you fight over, uh, you know, where you split hairs and where basically 
The task of the instructor is to define the terms. That's why Noam Chomsky is a linguistics professor. It's all about language, folks. You know, my favorite, still forever and ever, is the old New Yorker cartoon of the two guys drunk at the cocktail party, tearing each other to bits, screaming, Define your terms! Define your terms! Anyway... It's a biggie. It's a biggie. Moral rel- moral relativity. Actually, it's a bitch. Whoops, whoops, wrong word. Linguistics, Jennifer. We don't say a bitch anymore. Somehow, that's gone sour. Um, it used to be a fun word. We'd say bitchin'. But uh, suddenly, everything is pejorative, and we can't say that. Uh, I go... For definitions of morality that I got from the late philosopher George Santayana. Now, Santayana said that morality is the desire to lessen suffering in the world. You know, pain on earth. See how much it hurts and then make your judgment if you measure suffering carefully. See, then you get to the heart of things, um, the heart of the matter. Now, much suffering, human suffering, is caused by persons, people, humans in power, hurting persons without power, you know, torture, exploitation, whipping, and abuse. You know, if you ask, should one culture be uh, tolerant of all other cultures? Should we put up with anything someone else chooses to do? That, I believe, is called moral relativity. Uh, I would say, hell no. Uh, the example used this noon was um, FGM, or female genital Mutilation, he pointed out that the use of those terms uh, is specific. It's not about female circumcision. It's about genital mutilation, violence, wounding, you know. Anyway, on the show today, on C.S. Song's show, they discuss this barbaric practice. Uh, I see it as a torture for social control. You know, kind of like... uh, (laughs) Anorexia, you know, is another way of putting it, yes. Um, uh, I used to say that uh, girdles and waist pinchers were torture for social control, but yes, uh, these issues are not pure and simple, or they are pretty damn simple. Uh, it means, well, the, the process is oppression which is justified by patriarchal absolutes. That is to say, if a woman is to be marriageable, that is acceptable as a wife, a woman must be crippled, sexually mutilated, castrated, in fact. Uh, uh, Now, if that's not needless suffering, what is? Uh, Of course, in the West... There are other oppressions required when a woman is to be made marriageable. Uh, 
Some people say she must be made half a man. But anyway, uh, to hell with it. Hell with it. Enough of pain. Throw it off. Um, more and more, I'd like to read women who just throw it off. That's Gertrude Stein. I'm going to get to Gertrude in a minute. I hope I get to Gertrude. If I don't get to Gertrude today, I'll get to her next week. She's my pick for women who don't suffer or didn't want to suffer and decided it was a boring waste of time. After all, it's April and blossom time, yes. Emily Dickinson comes to my house and all the cheerful uh, women, you know, with my kind of morality, the kind of morality that uh, is a comfort. What is that? Uh, Charlotte Bronte says, nothing refines like affection. You know, um, the cozy things, things that make us forget about suffering and things that hold our hand during this cruelest month. Uh, I think they call April the cruelest month because spring always reminds us uh, that we are uh, mutable. The mutability theme. April demands that we come alive again with all our hearts. Oh, what an effort. Too much, too much work for me. Let's see. My list of positives this month, I'm so fragmented all over the place. So many things we're supposed to celebrate. Pete Seeger's going to be 80. Talk about celebrating life. Sunday, May the 3rd. Pete Seeger's going to be 80. I can't think of anything super enough. I'm going to work on that. Work on it for me. Let's think what we should do to celebrate uh, the great Pete Seeger. I do remember when my two sons were little kids... Our favorite record was the one that started with Abiyoyo, you know, the one where they roll the guy around. The children's, the children's songs, you know, get them when they're young, tenderize them, start their liberal education when they're preschoolers, they call them. Uh, let us just call them, uh, the little Zen Buddhists, the ones that haven't quite learned that the language can be used to torture people <laughs> as well as as to sing songs with uh, Pete Seeger. My gosh, 80 years old. That was my dream date for years. Ah, the other wonderful thing this week, I finally saw the movie Grey Gardens, recommended Grey Gardens, spelled G-R-E-Y, if you're calling up to find out where it's playing. I don't think it's playing around town. It's on cable television, HBO. Not that I recommend HBO, I just am addicted to it, can't help it. Anyway, it stars Drew Barrymore. Big shock came to me. Drew Barrymore is a genuine Barrymore. She comes from the family. Uh, Ethel Barrymore is up there smiling somewhere. Gee, I mean, I knew she was adorable, Drew Barrymore, and cute and everything. And it's that movie, The, the Wedding Singer, whatever, anyway. Um, and the one she did with Whoopi Goldberg. Anyway, this time she's done it. She plays Edie Beale, uh, cousin to Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy Onassis. And uh, the movie, this movie is fiction, but it's based on a documentary made a couple decades ago about these relatives of uh, Jackie Bouvier, uh, Aunt Edie and Aunt Edie's daughter Edie. Edie, Big Edie and Little Edie. 
They lived at Grey Gardens, was their summer home in the East Hamptons. And uh, a couple of guys came out with a camera and made a documentary, which was uh, a real shocker when it came out. It scared me to death, actually. Uh, I think it was seen more as a tragedy. That is, the women had fallen on very, very hard times. But they didn't seem to know it. Uh, they seemed to be living in a glorious fantasy land. Uh, hilarious. The movie takes a moment to... They tuck in Jackie Kennedy. Uh, the actress does it very well. Uh, Edie, little Edie, comes out and... <laughs> circles around Jackie. Uh, she feels her hair. Uh, her cousin, Edie Beale... Jackie Kennedy's cousin has that illness that makes your hair fall out, you know. Uh, I think of, who's that other person? I've forgotten her name. She's the daughter of Grace Kelly, America's famous actress who married over in, into uh, the royalty in Monaco. You remember, she had a daughter, Stephanie, and another daughter. The other daughter was the one whose hair fell out. Uh, symbolic, God knows, uh, supposed to be an illness uh, brought on by stress. <laughs> the the wonderful the wonderful uh, uh, woman uh, Drew Barrymore plays. Uh, she talks to Jackie, saying, "Well, you know, she had met Joe, the older Kennedy, the oldest son, the one who died in World War Two, and she might have married him and been first lady, you know." And her mother later says that was a whopper. You met him at a party once, and little lady said, well, I might have married him anyway. I recommend this movie as uh, the first women's picture that I've seen in years that qualifies for the name. Uh, it's the sort of story, characters, uh, if Charlie Dickens had got hold of them, he would have shredded them, would have turned them into... Characters like uh, Mrs. Havisham, you know, in Great Expectations. Um, <clears throat> woman living in the past forever, that sort of thing. But this is much more than that. And uh, as I say, it's a long time since I've seen a movie that brought a tear to my eye. The character, the young Edie, see, she'd be about ten years older than I am now. I'm now... 75. She died in 2002. Um, and I think, what is it? For people my age, it, it will bring back the period of the 1940s. It's not, it's certainly not Edith Wharton's New York, but it's a New York in which women were still pretty much dependent on marrying, uh, to get their, uh, fortunes made. Um, and, uh, you know, the world of society was real. It was uh, really something you had to cope with. I thought of Jackie, Jackie uh, Bouvier, Kennedy, Onassis, and um, a long essay once. Uh, Gore Vidal was a relative of hers, and he had suggested to her that she might, uh, she might want to be an actress, something along those lines, and... Jackie pointed out that um, John Kennedy Jack was probably headed for the big time uh, and that that was the most 
practical choice, although in this film we see another another glimpse of Jackie Kennedy, never mind. Uh, for women, it seems that you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, you know. If you're a winner, well, then you have to play that part. And if you're a loser, well, that's even worse. Um, yes, women's lives. I stayed up late last night to watch the second half of uh, recent masterpiece theater, uh, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, once again, a great woman's story, but written by Thomas Hardy, a Victorian who seems to have understood that women's lives uh, are not a joke. <laughs> it's a fabulous. Um, somebody somewhere picked Tess of the D'Urbervilles as the greatest English novel of all time. It's certainly the greatest Victorian novel of all time. Some people say that's Middlemarch, but it's a wonderful thing to argue about. Uh, Tess of the D'Urbervilles is, of course, a masterpiece about a fallen woman, a woman who has a child, out of wedlock, uh, winds up uh, committing murder to, uh, uh, what is that, to save her honor? Literally, she dies for her honor, not the sort of thing that women usually do, you know. Uh, as that wonderful woman in a doll's house says, you know, women give up their honor, you know, every day. That's the thing they do. Anyway, she is at Stonehenge in the end when the police come to arrest her for murder. Uh-huh. It's a fabulous book, the television show, the Masterpiece Theater show, is, well, it could be worse. It just, it just couldn't quite, you know, it, it, it's the problem. You know, I know that the book is not the movie. I know all that stuff. Uh, the thing is that when you, when you try to catch the essence of a great novel, uh, the, the few things that you do pick to put in the film, oh dear, let's see. They did, they used a wonderful actor to play um, the good guy's father, the clergyman, the man who represents uh, the Victorian voice of uh, the clergy, the good guys. Uh, it's the character who played uh, Pompey in Rome. I love that actor. So many of these English actors, I, I just love to watch them morph from one role to another. <laughs> you know? One of the milkmaids in this one was the slave who died of poisoning in Rome, and she was the girlfriend of uh, Henry VIII the other night, and then she had uh, another small part in uh, Little Dorrit. Oh, gosh. Uh, they're my family, these British actors. Anyway, what I had hoped that they would do in Tess of D'Urberville was to catch the moment, the, uh, the moment in that book when Tess, she's fleeing from the... Uh, the man, the wicked, uh, well, the people who are out to get her. And she hides in the forest one night. And she's she's fleeing from the vile seducer and all that kind of good stuff. And uh, she has to hide. She uh, curls up and falls asleep in a cul-de-sac in the woods. She sleeps there all night and she hears something falling all around her. And uh, it's the bird's in the trees all around her. They've been shot during the day by the hunters, and they're falling to their death in piles of leaves all around her, bleeding to death. Uh, 
they're the um, the wounded birds wounded in the hunt and like her they are uh, falling to their death anyway i remember um when i first read tess of d'urbervilles i was uh, still a mere teenager <laughs> i thought of myself as a victim of the sportsman yes as well uh trying to sleep in the dark uh anyway i remember thinking that stonehenge is of course the sacred place uh i think of it as well not so much for woman but for the ancient religion which of course is a feminine feminist woman centered religion stonehenge is the pre-christian site of the ancient rights of man uh i guess she had the right instinct but the wrong era <laughs> after after the hanging the virtuous man in the story angel clare he marries her younger sister she that's the consolation prize anyway tess told him that uh, he must marry the younger sister in order to keep the family going uh anyway stonehenge right uh perhaps i should go to stonehenge pay a visit and see what it's like there uh I recommend a test of the Durbervilles and the other one that's currently playing Little Dorrit. Little Dorrit um is a long one is five episodes most of them are an hour and a half and it's Charles Dickens spin uh, a very dark dark novel uh the first episodes I love them they're uh they take place in a debtor's prison and we see that uh Little Dorrit's father is much more at home in the debtor's prison than he would be in London he's he's quite the gentleman inside the debtor's prison and you know when a kind-hearted man offers to try to get him out she says no she thinks he would be uh lost in the world outside in London that he was uh quite happy inside uh where he was respected It's interesting interpretation anyway <laughs> I don't know I don't know uh that one little dorrit and hard times are probably the dickensian novels that are best suited to our time yes our time this week we celebrate the the 10th anniversary of the massacre at columbine talk about uh, a story for our time Eric and Dylan the two mad young men who murdered all their friends and then killed themselves and they now are the uh, what is it the archetypes of the sociopathic young white male uh I don't think we call it random violence anymore it's directed right at us at anyone anyone human anyone around them who has not what is the word has not loved them these guys just go ballistic for all the reasons that uh that any sane person would go ballistic uh i think of uh i think of not the middle ages so much uh i think of people driven mad all over the world uh i got a wonderful book in the mail today uh 
called Gods and Soldiers. It's an anthology of contemporary African writing. And I thought of all these children that have been, uh, well, I call it soul murder. They have been taken up before they've even reached the age where they're uh, reading and writing, these inarticulate little children, and turned into soldiers. Let's see. If you can find this book in the bookstore, I just got it in the mail. It's edited by Rob Spillman, S-P-I-L-L-M-A-N, called Gods and Soldiers. And it's got everybody in here. This is just wonderful. Uh, here's a story called Dragonfly from Angola. And the epitaph at the beginning, the epigraph, reads, If from these stones one announced what creates silence, here close by this would open like a wound. You would have to plunge into. I jumped right to the story by Nawal El Sadawe, the great woman who wrote The Hidden Face of Eve, my introduction to the horrors of female genital mutilation many years ago now. Uh, the story by Nawal Sadawe is too harsh to read on Cape Yafe. I know that sounds censorious, but. I read through it and it's, it's, well, it, it simply is a little story about a woman who claims the right to murder. Well, you know, that makes her a man. It's all about manliness, manhood. She says that uh, men had taught her everything except this, this she had to learn on her own, the capacity to kill. Not very cheerful. No, no, it's not. Everybody's in here. The best, of course, begins the nonfiction stuff. Chinue Achebe, the master, the one who wrote uh, Things Fall Apart. Back in 1960, that book was my introduction to African literature. I had to be told in the 1960s that so many Africans uh, wrote in English that it was their almost first language. My God, uh, it's, what is it? It's like finding a whole new literature when you discover all these brilliant African writers. Uh, it's like, you know, when I first opened up the books and found the Victorian writers in England. Uh, Chinue Achebe here. His non-fiction essay is called The African Writer and the English Language. I'm going to read that and try to synthesize it for you for KPFA. Uh, basically, I remember his talking about, <laughs> the, what we call it, the tragic elite. That's the African scholars who went to England and they had all the agonies of colonialism on their back along with the agonies of Africa. Anyway, there's tons and tons of fiction here. There's even uh, Nadine Gordimer in South Africa, a Jewish writer that uh, I guess, I guess probably one of the best known English writers in South Africa. Uh, let's see if the great playwrights are here. I do not see too many of the playwrights. Well, that's okay. These are mostly... Stories, fiction, and 
extracts from novels. Yes, indeed. Uh, this one, again, I recommend, and it's a book that I think may get me through the summer at the beach. It's called Gods and Soldiers, the Penguin Anthology of Contemporary African Writing. Go for it if you get a chance. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air next week at this same time. Until then, if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Happy endings are the rules. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Prize winner author Alice Walker says, The siege of Gaza is an attack on the common heart. Recently returned from Gaza, she will offer us a deeper understanding of that place when I interview her on Tuesday evening, April 28th, at the First Congregational Church of Oakland. My name is Malihera Zozan, producer and co-host of KPFA's Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I invite you to join us. The church has free parking and wheelchair access. It is at 2501 Harrison Street at 27th in Oakland. This event benefits Code Pink and KPFA and is supported by American Muslim Voice, Middle East Children's Alliance, Global Exchange, and a Jewish Voice for Peace. Advanced tickets are only $12 on KPFA's website or at independent bookstores. Full information is on kpfa.org.